Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome. Anybody at home uh, tuning in for the first time? Welcome. Against the Stream um, is a meditation, Buddhist meditation center, and uh, I've been teaching this Monday night class here or some version of it on the west side. Uh, We were in Santa Monica for the first many years. Uh, Mondays have been going on for I guess about 16 years, maybe close to 17 years. And um, everybody's welcome at Against the Stream. And a lot of people have come through. And there was a time when there were 150 people in the room every Monday night. And, and um, you know, with COVID and the uh, hybrid situation where we are Uh, half the people are at home, half the people are in the room. I think um, my sense is that people are getting nervous about this next uh, wave of of COVID and um, staying home, which makes sense. Uh, You're welcome to wear your masks here. I'm not going to mandate it, although California does have a mask mandate. Uh, Since technically we are a church, we are a religious organization, Um, We have an exemption. Apparently, uh, you're not allowed to tell churches what to do around this stuff. So the way that I um, think about it is that it's up to you and uh, encourage you to take care of yourself and and do what makes sense to you around masking and distancing. And of course, uh, those of you at home are hopefully perfectly safe in your own home. You know, one of the things that I want to talk about, I want to have some discussion, I have some questions for you about, um, you know, like what I just said, like we are a religious nonprofit against the stream as a Buddhist organization. And I very intentionally um, haven't secularized Buddhism and kind of pretended like it's not a religion, like a lot of meditation centers do like a lot of uh, Buddhist communities do, where they're kind of trying to remove the uh, religion and kind of pretend like uh, Buddhism isn't a religion and that we're just doing mindfulness. And as I had just said, everyone's welcome. Like, um, you know, you don't have to be a Buddhist to participate here. And the Buddhist teaching. What else is happening there? The Buddhist teachings, um, well, part, that's part of what I want to discuss tonight is like, is it religion? Um, is it religion to you? Is it your religion? Are you a Buddhist? Um, or are you practicing Buddhism? Uh, does it feel like, um, you know, what, what level of commitment do you have? Uh, you know, a lot of our community are uh, people who are recovering from addiction and they come here as their 11th step 
of like, I want to learn meditation um, to deepen my recovery process, but I'm not necessarily interested in becoming a Buddhist or uh, I know for myself, it's quite strange to, to be a Buddhist because I have a lot of uh, negative feelings about religion in general. And uh, it's a little hard to like, be like, oh yeah, I'm like a religious person. Um, I remember years ago, uh, there was like a mutual friend of somebody and they were like, oh yeah, hey, have you seen so-and-so? I heard they lost their mind on some religious shit because they were practicing Buddhism. You know, and just like that kind of mentality of like, oh, like you're into a, an organized religion. Um, and of course, the way that I present Buddhism here at Against the Stream is sort of disorganized. <laughs> it's not very organized. We don't ask for a lot of faith or a lot of um, commitment. You know, it's like Mondays, 17 years, drop in class, come, go, no commitment. If you want to be here, you, you choose to be here. Um, one of the reasons I'm thinking about this tonight is because uh, this coming year, I'm going to offer some opportunities for people who do want to take practicing Buddhism more seriously and who do feel like, um, you know, Mondays uh, isn't quite enough. And I want to have some other opportunities to deepen my study and practice of Buddhism. And there's this model that my teachers and the, and the monasteries have developed um, based on the monastic system where you gather together for like a day long and you take the refuges and you uh, reaffirm your commitment to the five precepts and, um, and you commit to it for a minimum of a year. You say, for this year, I'm going to um, commit to the five precepts. A couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk on the five precepts, but this commitment to not killing and not stealing and not lying and uh, abstaining from inappropriate sexual relationships, sexual misconduct, and completely abstaining from all recreational drugs and alcohol, being totally sober. For some of our community, that fifth precept is easy because we're sober people. <laughs> And we're already abstaining. And it's one of the reasons why we're interested in Buddhism. But for other people who get involved in Buddhism and are not alcoholics, they're not addicts, and then they're asked to maintain total abstinence, it's a more challenging request or suggestion. I'm going to discuss that a little bit more tonight. Um, so my opening question for you, as, as I like to do in the beginning of class, have you uh, talk to each other for a moment? So the question is, are you a Buddhist? And then um, whether it's yes or no, why? So if you are a Buddhist, if you've decided, you've read the books, you've come to the classes and you've decided, this is my path. This is what makes sense to me and what I'm doing. And, you know, fuck the label, but for all practical senses, it's how I'm living my life based on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, I'm practicing the five precepts, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Um, so if the answer is yes, why? why? Why are you choosing Buddhism as your spiritual path? Um, and the answer is no. And you're like, no, no, I'm not. A, no, nope, don't put a label on me. 
uh, I don't want to admit that I'm a Buddhist. Why? And, and maybe you're not. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're uh, a Jew or a Muslim or uh, a Hindu. Uh, or maybe you're, you know, firmly uh, secular. I'm not, I don't know religions, but I meditate every day. <laughs> I practice Buddhist practices, but I'm not part of the, uh, and th that's a very interesting thing into this sort of why, like if you're actually following the five precepts, you're trying to develop the eightfold path in your life. You're practicing meditation. What makes you not a Buddhist? Do you hold some other views that don't align with the Buddha's teachings? Maybe you're a theist. Can you be a Buddhist theist? Um, or maybe uh, you feel like you're such an atheist or there's parts of Buddhism around reincarnation or something that you just can't quite accept. So you feel like, well, I'm like a 90% Buddhist, but I'm not 100%, I'm not all in because some of it doesn't resonate but most of it does. So are you a Buddhist? Um, and whether the answer is yes or no, why? And then I'm gonna you know, get into the discussion about this uh, more in depth. And especially like if you're new and you're like, I don't fucking know yet. I mean, the answer is no for now, but um, at some point uh, it'll become more clear and, and hopefully I'll do a bit of an overview tonight that'll give you some more information about what it means to be a Buddhist. And, um, and I'll also tell you that I don't think it's very important to take on the label of being a Buddhist. And so it's a sort of an interesting question. I don't think it's important. But I do think it's interesting to just watch your own mind around, can I have this label on me and if you and if the answer is yes like why you like that oh it gives me this security of like i am part of something i am a buddhist i have a path i have a map of how to navigate reality so find a couple of people in the room and have this discussion about are you a buddhist and why and i'll open the rooms for you at home and i really encourage you to join the room some of you don't go into the rooms and i would encourage you to go in there and talk to each other but of course it's up to you if we are practicing mindfulness if you're practicing mindfulness whether you learned it from your psychologist or uh, your therapist or the hospital or from a meditation center, if you're practicing mindfulness, you're practicing Buddhism. Uh, mindfulness is something that the Buddha discovered. Uh, there's no uh, mindfulness teachings found in any other religions um, that, that predate the teachings of the Buddha. There are absolutely, um, you know, the Buddha was very influential and and influenced a lot of, you know, 2,600 years ago. So there's lots of ways that it was integrated into different traditions. And, and of course, it's where all of the Western secular mindfulness comes from, from Buddhism. So I think that there's, I think it's so interesting that in the West at this point, there are millions and millions of people practicing Buddhist meditation and that don't even know it. 
all of these all of these apps headspace and uh calm and you know all of these apps that we you know we have millions of people meditating in, in america practicing buddhist meditation techniques and they're not even aware that they're practicing buddhism and it's been very sort of intentionally hidden from our judeo-christian culture you know in order to sell it monetize it and and you know a negative part of it is monetize it but the positive part is just to make it uh palatable to our christian country pretend like it's not buddhism and that it's just a technique it's a psychological uh, uh neuroscientific based technique so i saw some questions um about uh you know why is buddhism a religion what makes it a religion what's the definition and we'll, we'll discuss all of that but we'll start with a period of practicing mindfulness buddhist mindfulness and then i'll go into some more um, of this so find a way to sit that's upright relaxed Allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Having a posture that is upright without being tense. Taking a moment to soften any places of tension that you can releasing the brow the jaw the neck and shoulders the chest and belly mindfulness is awareness present time awareness the first foundation of mindfulness is our bodies becoming aware of the present sensations in the body. Feel the contact with the seat you're on. The sensations created in the body resting in the chair, on the couch, on the cushion. bring awareness to the sensations that your breath creates in your body how do you experience the breath what sensations tell you that you're breathing in or breathing out Buddha's 
instruction was breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Give your full awareness to the sensations of the breath. And in order to be mindful of our bodies in this way, we have to disengage from the contents of our minds. The thoughts about the future and the past. In the background, as we intentionally direct our awareness to the body. Mindfulness is not trying to stop anything. We're still aware of sound, still aware of thought. But in this first foundation, we make the upright body sitting, breathing the focus. Letting everything else be in the background. Thoughts continuing to arise and pass. We're giving our attention to the breath. When you find yourself involved in a thought, just becoming aware of it, knowing, oh, this is planning or remembering, fantasizing, resenting, whatever the mind's doing. You don't need to stop it. Let that thought continue to float through awareness as you choose to bring your attention back. The sensations created by the breath.
present time awareness of the moment to moment changing sensations in the body, in the heart, in the mind. Each breath has a beginning, a middle, an end. Mindfulness revealing the truth of impermanence, the transient, constantly changing nature of all experience. you're new to this kind of meditation, it's a good idea to just use the breath as the primary focus. Each time you get involved in a thought, disengage, come back to the breath, gently returning to the present over and over. But the Buddha's encouragement around training our heart and mind and present time awareness becomes more and more inclusive rather than focusing just on the breath he encourages a full body awareness awareness that this body is the four elements
and including the sense doors, hearing and seeing, smelling and tasting, as well as thinking. Thoughts and emotions included in our present time awareness. Just as we can come to know that the breath is coming and going, we can also come to know that thoughts are just arising and passing. Then we can refine the awareness to investigate what you're feeling. Is it pleasant, the breath itself? What's your perception of the feeling tone of your posture sitting or of your heart? What, what emotions are here or of your mind, what thoughts? And are they pleasant thoughts or pleasant emotions, pleasant sensations? Or are they unpleasant? Is the mind agitated, anxious, worried? Is the body uncomfortable? Is the heart defended, closed? Part of our mindfulness is this inquiry, investigation, curiosity about what's happening moment to moment. What is my mind doing right now? What is my body feeling? And what is experienced as pleasant and what is experienced as unpleasant with total acceptance? or as much acceptance as we can have. Giving yourself permission to be uncomfortable and not do anything about it. Just bring awareness to discomfort.
more we bring awareness to pain, the more we develop compassion for our own pain as well as the pain of others. The more we bring awareness to the impermanent nature of pleasure, the more we learn to let go, to not be so controlling or attached, to accept the reality that all things are changing, arising and passing. So some reflections on um, what it means to practice Buddhism and uh, love to have some dialogue with you all about any questions you have about that. But I'll just start by uh, reminding you that the Buddha was a person that existed. He's not a god or a, it's not a myth. <laughs> he was a real human being uh, 2,600 years ago. And he was somebody who was so um, curious about, is it possible on some level, the, the kind of core question is like, is it possible to not suffer as human beings? Is it possible to be happy, to be at ease? Is it, is it possible for humans to 
experience peace, contentment. Um, and he didn't know the answer, but he hoped that he could find it. And he went out on a quest, a spiritual uh, quest, and uh, learned all the meditation techniques that he could from the wisest people uh, of his generation that he could find, the, the most enlightened gurus around. He went and sought their instruction. And, and he found that um, when he went to these teachers, these you know, ancient Indian, uh, what we'd call Hindu, but maybe as more uh, Brahmanism, Brahmanic teachers. Um, um, he went to these teachers looking for answers, looking for, can you teach me how to meditate? Can you teach me how to see clearly? Can you teach me how to, you know, calm my mind, control my mind, know my mind, know the causes of suffering, have some freedom from suffering? Um, and his experience, what he reported was, uh, they taught me these concentration-based meditations that led to these incredible experiences of bliss and of emptiness and of uh, transcendence. And I, I learned these to, to concentrate my mind so much that all of the causes of suffering temporarily vanished. And I had uh, experiences of joy and of bliss but that when I wasn't concentrating my mind, uh, the causes of suffering came back. And he said, I found that so unsatisfactory that I wasn't just looking for a meditative fix. I, I wasn't, didn't just want something that temporarily felt good. I wanted to actually find something that would, I could, uh, that was more portable, <laughs> that was more, that I could integrate into my every day, moment to moment experience rather than just this meditative phenomena. I wanted transformation and altered uh, trait in the way that I relate to reality rather than a temporary altered state. And so he rejected the teachings that he came into contact with and the meditation techniques, which you know, or things like what we would call TM, um, kind of transcendental focused. Uh, he said this, you know, he said, I tried it and it was felt great, but it didn't, uh, it didn't give me what I was looking for. Um, and I was looking for liberation that was inclusive of all of the activities of my life that wasn't just on the meditation cushion, but that was in how I communicated with people and how I listened to people. And, uh, you know, I wanted something walking, you know, walking down the street that I could take with me um, that wasn't just ignoring the causes of suffering, but uh, sometimes he used the term uprooting and that, um, and so that was what led him to uh, mindfulness and this technique that we're doing, which is rather than focusing the attention and ignoring everything else, doing this inclusive present time awareness uh, of observing the mind and the causes of suffering in the mind, the painful thoughts, the painful um, emotions, the painful sensations, and not meditating them away, but being with them, learning to be with what's happening moment to moment. And seeing through mindfulness that there's this 
instinctual tendency to cling to what's pleasant and to push away what's unpleasant. And as you practice a little mindfulness, you see that like, oh yeah, I like the pleasant thoughts and I chase them or the pleasant sensations and I cling to them or, and I don't like the unpleasant sensations and I wanna push them, I wanna meditate them away. Maybe you even see that, like I come back to my breath because that's an unpleasant thought, which in the beginning it's okay. But then ultimately Buddhist mindfulness is just be with what your mind's doing. Watch it, observe it, break your addiction to thinking that it needs to be pleasant all of the time. That's just such an unrealistic idea. Um, but mindfulness leads to a sense of peace and ease and acceptance of some thoughts are pleasant, some are unpleasant. They're all impermanent. Some sensations are pleasant, some are unpleasant. It's all impermanent. So when he came to his awakening um, through mindfulness, which in some ways is kind of three core wisdoms, skills. One is uh, mindfulness leading to non-attachment. When we are aware of the impermanent nature of pleasure, then we stop clinging. Non-attached response to even the most pleasant experience. Let it arise and enjoy it <laughs> as it passes through. And compassion, rather than hating pain and trying to push it away, the impermanent, unpleasant experience met with mercy, met with acceptance, met with forgiveness, compassion. And ultimately, the more you're mindful, we are mindful of our mind and our body and investigate what's happening moment to moment, the more you start to wake up to like, oh, it's not so personal. Like, where is this self centeredness coming from? Why am I so I, me, mine all of the time? Why do I uh, think that I'm my thoughts? And a little bit of mindfulness or a lot of mindfulness leads to that wisdom of like, oh, my body just breathes all by itself. I'm not making my lungs breathe. They're just breathing. My heart beats all by itself. I'm not making my heart beat. It just what the body does. You got a body, you breathe, your heart beats, you digest. You're not, you're not taking that so personal. Like I'm really creating a shit right now in my intestines. It's like, no, that's just my body just digests. You don't take that personal, but whatever arises in our mind, you're really like, oh yeah, no, that's me. I am thinking about the future. I am worrying. I'm anxious. I am ruminating, I'm resentful, I'm, and mindfulness starts to pull back the curtain. I'm like, oh, that's not who I am. My, my mind just has a mind of its own. It just thinks all by itself and it worries and it ruminates and it plans and it remembers and it resents. And how much of your thoughts are not volitional? You're not, you're not doing it on purpose. I don't know what percentage would be interesting. Keep a journal. How many of your thoughts do you think on purpose? Do you say, I'm going to think about all of these people I hate right now. <laughs> I'm just going to do that. Or I'm going to worry. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to spend most of the day worrying today. <laughs> I'm going to, 
I'm going to judge everyone. I'm going to intentionally compare myself to everyone else. Right? Like you're not really making that choice, but your mind does it and then you take it personal. You think, oh, I'm worrying rather than this, what mindfulness leads to, which is this, my mind has a tendency to worry. My mind has a tendency to judge, to compare, to crave pleasure, to hate pain, and starts to pull the, uh, you know, give us a little bit of space and to become aware of like, it's not that personal. It's not just your mind. One of the functions of community, of gathering together and meditating and listening to these teachings and realizing like, oh, everybody's like that. It's not just me. This is the human condition. And this is one of the brilliant uh, functions of the Buddha's teaching, which he just normalizes it. And unlike a lot of other spiritual or religious traditions, that then there's some kind of blame and shame and concept of sin and, you know, kind of, the Buddha just says, like, no, it's not your fault. Mindfulness, like, on some level, it's like, it's not your fault. It's not personal. You took birth. Maybe that's your fault. (laughs) Maybe you fucked up and took birth. But beyond that, having a mind, a body, we're subject to the realities of craving and aversion and self-centeredness. And mindfulness leads to non-attachment, compassion, and non-identification, not self. So when the Buddha began to teach, he said, okay, there's these four, we, he said noble truths, but I, like, I think we should call them four normalizing truths. Suffering is normal. Repetitive craving is the cause of suffering. That's normal. You have some cravings for pleasure, aversion to pain, normal. It's possible in this lifetime through our own efforts to experience freedom that was his he's like i did it i got there i'm free i now i meet pain with compassion i meet pleasure with non-attachment i don't take this also personal i have discernment of what thoughts are volitional what are non-volitional what are wise thoughts wholesome thoughts what are unwise untrustworthy thoughts that discernment the wisdom to know the difference embodied through mindfulness. He says, uh, and here's the path, the eightfold path. If you want to experience freedom from suffering, then be my, practice mindfulness. Be mindful in the formal meditation practice and then bring mindfulness to your speech, mindfulness to your actions, mindfulness uh, and some renunciation around speech and actions and livelihood, our relationship to money, to sensuality, become awake, become aware and practice some renunciation. Stop doing everything you want to do all of the time. Stop being a, a, a slave to your cravings. Break the addictions.
which leads to wisdom, leads to intentionally living our life with less and less suffering. So uh, sort of a simplified version, but on some level, if that's what you're doing, then you're practicing Buddhism. You know, when it comes to actions, I feel like this is a sticking point, not, not as much for our community. The majority of our community uh, is on board with the fifth precept. Abstinence from recreational drug and alcohol use. The majority of people that come through against the stream are like, yeah, I'm in. Partially because we're a bunch of recovering junkies <laughs> and we need to be. But it's not, you know, there are some people that walk, you know, come here and they're like, I want to end suffering, but I still want to get a buzz sometimes. I still, I want to, I, I want to do this, but I still want to be able to have a glass of wine or I want to be able to, uh, and it becomes more of a dilemma for them. And there's this situation in Western Buddhism, especially, and in Northern schools of Buddhism in the Tibetan schools or the Zen schools, where abstinence isn't encouraged. In the early teachings of the Buddha, uh, he was very clear, what we call Theravada in Buddhism, very clear. In order to end suffering, you have to uh, intentionally be mindful all of the time, as, as, you know, as, as consistently as, as possible. And so it's necessary to abstain from drugs and alcohol because they heed, they block, your ability to be mindful. It's one of the reasons why we like them so much. It takes the edge off of having to deal with reality. But the Buddhist path is a path based in this deep commitment to being with reality as it is, unadulterated, unfiltered, undiluted reality as it is all of the pain, all of the joy, all of the boredom of reality. Um, so he taught the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. And Buddhism originally was a pretty small cult. He was um, a, a really radical, you know, who, who guy who grew up in in Hindu and Brahmanism and um, and rejected it. But he was in a culture that was uh, firmly implanted in a polytheistic uh, worldview with the gods, with. Uh, you know, Krishna and Shiva and Hanuman and um, Ganesh and, you know, all of the, the Indian archetypal gods. And he rejected that view and created this humanist psychological uh, mind training that it was a totally non-theistic way to come to awakening without any petitioning of higher powers without any um, belief in, in external forces being able to transform the individual. 
putting total responsibility on the individual for their own awakening. Purify your karma, train your mind, renounce unwholesome behaviors that lead to suffering. And through that, uh, you will awaken. And the original, you know, there's the original formulation is the best thing that you can do for the benefit of all living beings is free yourself from suffering. You will inspire so many people. The more free you get, everyone's going to (laughs) notice. They're going to notice as you get free. And it's a, a tremendous act of service, your own awakening. It was a tremendous act of service. I mean, look at us sitting here talking about the Buddha for 2,600 years ago, the dude woke up and we're still talking about it. <laughs> it's a, he, he created mindfulness. It's fucking amazing. He knew how to meet pain with compassion. It's like he's a saint or something. He was a compassionate person because compassion so rare because it's so uh, unfortunately uncommon to be a truly compassionate person. And then Buddhism turned into a world religion. Um, I don't know how many thousands or, of Buddhists there were in the Buddha's lifetime, but it wasn't millions. And, uh, and of course, anytime that there's like power dynamic and communities, there was all kinds of factions. Even in the Buddhist time, there was different factions that have different interpretations. What does emptiness mean? What is, you know, karma? Like there was, there's always been conflict in in Buddhism, uh, within a hundred years after the Buddha's, uh, death, there was something, I don't know how many, maybe a hundred different schools of Buddhism. What we find now is that there's like three or four main schools of Buddhism. There's Theravadan Buddhism as it is practiced in Sri Lanka and uh, Burma and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia, the Southeast Asian Theravadan, what we call the Southern School of Buddhism. It's the oldest school. It's the closest to the early teachings. Theravada means the elders, the path of the elders those who are like the old school and the, and on some level, a little bit fundamentalist, sometimes the Theravadans of like, we're sticking with the OG path. This is what the Buddha taught. This is what we're going to do. But there's a lot of developments over the centuries. And um, by the time Buddhism starts to travel North, uh, a lot of the, um, Buddhism that made its way into China and and then eventually back to Tibet and Korea and Japan, it's called Mahayana, this, uh, the the greater vehicle. And it's it's a bit of like a revisionist Buddhism where it's like, you know, we've tweaked it a little bit. We've changed it. We've improved it. You know, the Buddha said this stuff, but we've made it even better. It's even greater than those guys that are sticking with the original teaching. This is the new improved version. I was talking, I was having an argument some years ago, a discussion with a Mahayana friend of mine. And he's like, 
just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. He's like, why are you so attached to like the original? What about evolution? What about improvement? Like, you know, don't, don't you think that like, don't you, don't you appreciate that technology improves? You know, hundreds of years later, like he's like us Mahayana, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhists, or he's like, we've made this shit even better. And so it's, you know, and one of the core differences as you're thinking about what kind of, are you a Buddhist? What kind of Buddhist? I don't know if you've been asked that yet, but if you tell people, yeah, I'm meditating, I'm practicing Buddhism. Like, well, what kind of Buddhism? Theravadan, Mahayana, Vajrayana, uh, or like in our culture where everything's just Zen. Oh yeah, I'm super zen out, man. She's super Zen these days. As just a term that means mindful, spiritual, calm, I don't know. So my own experience is that um, I started practicing meditation. I wasn't interested in Buddhism at all. I was a drug addict and um, I wanted to start the recovery process and mindfulness meditation was helpful. And I was uh, kind of an anti-religious, anti-spiritual attitude about things. But I directly experienced, this is helping me change my relationship to the cravings for alcohol and drugs and change my relationship to the self-centeredness and all of the suffering I've been creating for myself and others. And, and so the more I practiced and started to read the books and listen to the teachers and um, in the early years, I had the dilemma that so many of us have of like, okay, what kind of meditation? I like mindfulness. I also like to chant Hare Krishna. I also like the Sufi teachings, the poet, you know, Rumi's awesome, you know, Hafiz, like a, I like the, uh, you know, the Persian poets. Um, at one point I was uh, so inspired uh, to have a spiritual awakening, spiritual experience that I thought I better read the Bible because I've been talking shit about it for my whole life, <laughs> but I'm not really sure what's in there. <laughs> You know, like if you ask like this question of like, are you, why aren't you a Christian? And kind of like, well, I better find out why I'm not, a, I'm pretty sure I'm not a Christian, but I better figure out why. And actually reading the Bible and I read most of the Quran, at least lots of sections of it. And, um, you know, and, and the Bhagavad Gita and kind of checking out the Hindu, the Bhagavad Gita and, and some of the Vedas, the Rig Veda. And, you know, I, I spent some years looking at, all of the different spiritual and religious teachings to decide, you know, am I a Buddhist? Um, Buddhist meditation is really helpful. I'm directly experiencing it. And, um, you know, and I've always had this dilemma that some of you have of getting sober in 12 step and this encouragement to believe in a higher power. 
and it never fitting quite right for me. And then as I looked at spiritual paths and um, Buddhism, the only one that I found that didn't say you got to have some blind faith. You got to believe in a higher power. You got to, you got to believe in the, you know, the grace of the guru or the uh, blessings of the gods or goddesses or um, So one of the reasons why I landed in Buddhism was direct experience of like, I'm kind of a practical person. I'm like, well, because it works, I'm doing it and it's working. So that's it. But also because it's non-theistic, it's not asking me to believe any uh, or, or much of any mystical um, things. It's not actually asking me to assign meaning to uh, things that happen and say like, well, that's God's will and that's self-will. And Buddhism says, no, no, it's all just karma. It's all you're responsible for your actions. And I like that. For me, that makes sense. And that's one of the reasons why it feels almost embarrassing, but like I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> and almost embarrassing because um, Buddhism is a world religion that is totally corrupt in almost every tradition, including Theravada. It is, um, uh, you know, there's sexism in it, there's racism in it, there's, uh, you know, patriarchal uh, systems uh, of oppression in in buddhism there uh, a lot of maybe the majority of what calls itself buddhism is um very far departure from the buddha's original teachings there's what seems to be a fact that less than 10 percent of buddhists meditate so my own opinion is buddhism is a religion it's one of the you know there's Christianity, there's Judaism, there's Islam, and there's Buddhism as the major world religions with billions of followers in each of these four schools. Now, of course, Judeo-Christian, Islamic gods of Abraham, they all believe the same thing. They hate each other for it, but they all believe the same thing. And Buddhism is really different to have no God, to have no grace, to have no punishing, judging, or, you know, external, this humanist psychology that Buddhism teaches. I guess I left out Hinduism. I saw David back there. You know, Hinduism also number five world, you know, huge. India, billions of what we call, currently we call Hinduism. Buddhism is a world religion, but it's the only non-theistic world religion. But a lot of the ways that people practice non-theistic Buddhism is practically theistic, worshiping statues as though the Buddha is a god, 
making offerings, petitioning. The dude who said, I'm not a God, <laughs> who said, it's in you. What I'm doing is pointing out for how you can free yourself. I can't do it for you. But of course, we fuck everything up. There's something about uh, our existence that's devotional, that externalizes. We look outside of ourself. And even in Buddhism, where you're encouraged to say, no, no, this is an inside job, you're still like, yeah, but the, I got to bow to the statue, which is okay, right? Like, you can, there can be a, a healthy ritual and devotion if you understand that the statue is just um, a reminder of the four truths, the normalizing. And if anything, it's just to uh, say, like, this is possible. It's possible to get free. Siddhartha did it. Millions of people have done it since. Over the last 30 years of being a Buddhist, um, I've seen, you know, there was periods early on where I was pretty, uh, and this happens a lot, like when you're a new convert and you are kind of like, you want to talk to everyone about it. You want to kind of tell everybody how amazing mindfulness is. And maybe you're doing, some of you are in that phase still. And I'm trying to convert your friends and family and go home for Christmas next week and tell your Judeo-Christian Islamic relatives about how much better Buddhism is than the shit they believe in. And then I've also had periods of um, dangerously close to disillusionment. I don't know how many of you have hit that wall yet where you're like, you know, I just don't want to be part of anything or you start to wake up to your teachers whether it's me or other teachers are imperfections you start to you know having projected uh you know on the teacher as supposed to be perfect you know father figure or mother figure or whatever it is and then you get disillusioned you're like wait a minute like these people are human they're imperfect they're maybe um, have some um, hypocrisy. I've had this tendency with all of my teachers to just, because I'm like hyper, um, you know, aware, sensitive to like, is there any corruption here? And looking at like, is there any hypocrisy? Is there any, and then if I could just find a little bit. And even, even when, and I've said this before, I feel like, you know, most of the teachers that I've had have been mostly good, like 90%, like 95%, like wholesome, kind, generous people, but I'll get so focused on the 5%. I'll get so kind of like, wait a minute, but you know, you're not, it doesn't seem like you're, you're a bit of a hypocrite over here, or you're a bit of out of integrity over here. Um, you don't practice the fifth precept. How can I trust you? 
rather than, well, you know, 90% pretty good. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty good. So what do you think about being a Buddhist? And um, part of the reason I'm asking, and, uh, and I have this idea that this coming year, I'll do these quarterly recommitting to your process of, of practicing Buddhism. Uh, and this is something that they do in the monasteries where we'll get together and you can take the five precepts and say, I'm going to live by these precepts. You can reestablish your, your vows of, of taking refuge in your own awakening. For the last 16 years, I've been doing Monday nights, basically, uh, however many, 16, 17, basically just on New Year's Eve, I do the refuges once a year. And then if you come to retreat, but I thought like this in 22, let's do it quarterly rather than once a year. Like every three months, let's get together, do a day long of meditation, um, do the, ref the, the refuges, do the precepts and commit to this path of awakening together. I'm, I'm going to make it available to you. One of the other things that I'd like to do, and maybe I'm running out of time, so maybe this is another talk. But there's this thing they do in the monastery that I've been wanting to do in community forever. In the mon monastery, they um, get together, they do it twice a month where they recite their precepts and the monks and nuns. And they say, these are what I'm committing to, the renunciation. This is what I'm committing to. And before they recite it, they take each other aside. They do this intentional uh, process where you uh, are so accountable to each other that you admit what precepts you've broken. And I've been wanting, it's almost like a Buddhist confession. And I know for those of you with Catholic trauma, um, <laughs> it might feel like, oh, no, no, I'm not confessing. That's, you know, that's weird. But so it's not like, in, in this case, it's not like confessing to the Dharma teacher. It's confessing to each other and this accountability of like, I've been really trying to practice right speech, but I keep lying and just admitting it. I keep exaggerating or minimizing or admitting, omitting stuff that I should be saying. And, and, just, uh, and I want to be more accountable. I want to recommit to this level of rigorous honesty or, um, you know, I murdered all of the ants in my kitchen again. I really want to practice not killing, but I just keep participating in this genocide. <laughs> um, and so just like having that accountability and this confession and the really cool part of that ceremony, and I have to adapt it from the monastic to our lay community, is that then there's this, this process of like normalizing our imperfections and a, a kind of a group forgiveness of like, I'm gonna keep trying to be in integrity with my speech, with my actions, with my values. And I'm also gonna keep forgiving myself and forgiving each other for where we fall short. And so taking the precepts, doing the refuges and a forgiveness confessional. Um,
So what are your thoughts about being a Buddhist? What questions do you have, if any? Tibby, go ahead, jump in. Noah, I, yes. I still have that question. I still have that question yeah. about why is it a religion? Because it doesn't ask you to take, it's a science, it's an, a way of life, it's a philosophy, but doesn't, I'm a Buddhist, a bad Buddhist, but I don't see it as a religion. Thanks. I, I've looked it up before. The definition of religion uh, you know, most there's a kind of mostly theistic, if you look up religion in the dictionary, mostly it's about kind of what which God do you believe in? Um, because, of course, the dictionaries are written by theists. <laughs> so the definition of religion is mostly like which, you know, do you believe in the, you know, the Christian God or the Muslim God or the Hindu God or um, but there's also a section of the definition of religion is something like the uh, values and spiritual beliefs and um, structure of your of community that you participate in. And so Buddhism is a religion because billions of human beings structure their life around these teachings. And it's devotional and it's it, it calls for uh, uh, you know, it calls for renunciation, it calls for discipline, it calls for some level of devotion, not so much of an external, but even just our taking refuge in the community. It's, um, it's got all of the things of religion, except for God. And so religion has to have a um, definition that's bigger than theism. That's a non-theistic religion to billions of people. Go to, you know, you've been to Thailand, Tibby. It's their religion. It's not their philosophy like us Westerners who are like, well, you know, fiscally I'm a um, Christian, but spiritually I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> like, no, it's your, you know, it's, it, is, it is a world religion, whether or not you, that we're benefiting from. And it has been for 2,600 years. Any questions in the room, please, Skylar? that high it's always a dead end but i still 
So you can always go back to that, but then I usually then go back to you know mindfulness. So no, I mean I love the reflection. Um, you know, for those of you at home that couldn't hear him, uh, you know this how challenging it is to to practice this path when we're constantly being pulled by our cravings, and you know, um, and and the question of like, well, is it LA? Is it you know the modern society? You know, our place against the stream, and you've probably heard me say this before. The term against the stream comes from just after the Buddha's awakening, where he is considering teaching whether or not he should create a religion out of this thing or not, whether he should create a, a path and a community. And he said, you know, in this generation of people that are so, um, you know, attached to the pleasure, constantly chasing pleasure, this generation of people who are constantly trying to avoid pain, this, this, these people who are so self-obsessed, it's going to be tiresome. And, and he thought, he said, very few people will actually take to this path. At one point, he said, probably only a handful in each generation will be actually willing to practice the level of renunciation of dedicate. You know, the, this is why there's billions of Buddhists and 10% of them meditate. Because even though it's become this sort of ritualized devotional, go and try to make some merit at the temple and make some donations, uh, you know, have the monks meditate for you, but the monks aren't really meditating either. You know, like there's this sort of like prophecy where the Buddha saw like it's possible, but it's so difficult that very few people are going to follow through. You know, as from this teacher seat, um, how many thousands, tens of thousands of people have come through this Monday night class? Some of you were here when there was. 150 people out in the hallways of the other meditation center every week thousands of people coming through how many of them continued to practice some of them you know have gone off to other communities and stuff but mostly there's a lot of just like spiritual tire kicking where you come and you check it out and you're like that's eh, not really a quick fix i'll go you know do something i'll go look somewhere else or or you do it for a while, but you're constantly pulled back. The stream is so strong to pull us back into the world, into clinging, into aversion, into a material solution rather than a spiritual internal transformation. So, of course, you know, and you said, I don't know if, it, if it's just me, it's, it's all of us are fighting that battle, every single one of us because we live with a mind that craves pleasure, a body that craves pleasure. And there's a whole bunch of other paths that will promise an easier, softer, quicker, cheaper <laughs> path to enlightenment, you know? And that's, that's the kind of modern, you know, Instagram spirituality where everyone's selling a quick fix. You know, just go take ayahuasca and be done with it. <laughs> Rather than meditating your way all the way through. So we're out of time and we didn't get to have the full conversation I wanted to have. So to be continued next week, we'll talk some more about this and the forgiveness. Um, 
confessional that I'm going to create and the accountability and and part of you know the whole intention with this is encouraging those of you who are inspired to commit to this uh, program that I'm going to do next year and to um, have that kind of accountability with the community accountability to your own practice and to each other in the community have you thought about when that starts yeah i think it's gonna i'm i'm, I'm just finishing the write-up but probably january get the new year going mm -hmm. so it'll be every three months um or three or four months something like that yeah Classes done by donation against the stream is um, a nonprofit organization that is supported by the generosity of those of you who attend. So please be generous. There's a 15 to $20 suggested donation for drop in class. Um, if you have more, give more, give whatever feels appropriate to you. If you have less, know that you're welcome to be here, whether you have the ability to donate. Um, but that, of course, it costs money to keep the lights on and to pay the rent. So please help us do that. Thank you so much. Um, my mom, last week, we I dedicated the merit to her. She's at class on Zoom tonight. She's okay. Um, and she just put a note in the um, chat that says, thank you all for the dedication of the merit to her last week. Pretty sure we saved her life. She was uh, right around when we were ending class. She was like had a like a second heart attack and like was it was it wasn't looking good actually Monday night and then she came out of it Tuesday morning and and is is doing okay now. So thanks, mom, and um, glad you're here tonight. Thanks, Noah. May any goodness that comes from the merit of our practice tonight be offered outward in all directions shared with all sentient beings may each one of us get as free as you can in this lifetime and together may we create a positive change on this planet good to see everybody thanks for tuning into the podcast this is noah levine founder of against the stream and refuge recovery if you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.